I think we're going to war for real. I'll tell you one little story that I probably have never told anybody before. We got hit with a NVA sapper company supported by infantry. It's not easy and no, that one was tough, but fortunately it worked out for us. Welcome to War Stories, conversational military history. What's going on, everyone? Preston Stewart and Sayer Payne from War Stories, joined today by John Spencer. Sir, thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So um, you've got a, a, a deep and long bio. Do you, you mind taking a couple minutes talking about yourself, who you are, what you're doing now? Sure. My, my wife will, will happily say that I love to talk about myself. Uh, Perfect. So I joined the Army a long time ago, 1993, as a private out of high school. Went from private to sergeant first class, all in the infantry. I had, had amazing opportunities and amazing units, everything from the 173rd in Italy to 2nd Ranger Battalion. Um, and around 2001, really before 9-11 happened, I decided to go to officer candidate school, um, went through the process. As a brand new second lieutenant, I went straight back to 173rd and a couple months later was jumping into northern Iraq as part of the invasion. All right. So I did my entire, yes. I mean, just, I, my whole story is just a story of right place, right time. Uh, and, and amazing opportunities. A couple of times there's were doors that were opened and I made sure I walked through them. But I, I, I went to you know, Iraq in 2003 as a, as a brand new platoon leader for a full year of the invasion. Amazing opportunity. Uh, left there, actually went back to school to finish. I, I did the degree completion program. So I went mm -hmm. back to school in Italy. Uh, hardship tour really no uh, went to you know career course became a ranger instructor which is also was a dream come true so as a captain was a ranger instructor did the best ranger competition really oh hold on what years was all this then when you're doing that stuff so i was a uh, an ri and fourth ranger battalion from 2005 to 2000 and late 2007 i did the best ranger competition in 2007 interesting fact about that is that my my very close friend who I became, I later worked for at West Point was the winner that year. So he'd like to rub that in my face. as much. <laughs> of course. I mean, he literally puts his pistols up. Now he's retired as well, right behind him in, in shots from, from that Liam Collins, uh, just a beast. Uh, but he, he it's makes a bucket list thing just to do it. Right. We all know the pistols couldn't even imagine to win it, but yeah. I feel like just the experience of train up and then actually doing the competition. Wow. Yeah, and to stand next to the the warriors that show up to that thing. Yeah, and you know, not a lot of people get the opportunity, like you said. I mean, there's all kinds of beasts in our military, but not all of them get the opportunity to do to get cut to do the training because some just don't get no time; they just go do it. Sure. Uh, but also, to, your first time doing it, first time finisher, which is for us was huge. If you can finish the competition, since like fifty percent die out the first day. Totally. Um, uh, so that yeah, it was. It, it's. I don't have the picture behind me, but I have a picture of, I mean, it's huge to my 25 year career was that moment of doing that competition. Awesome. Uh, awesome. Uh, so I, out, out of being an RI there, I got a call saying, do you want a company command in combat uh, in 2008? So you answer that call like anybody else would. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. So I, I drove to Fort Carson, Colorado, dropped off my stuff and then flew straight into Baghdad to take a company in the fourth infantry to, division in, right during right before the battle of cyrus city kicked off in 2008 hmm. so i did 12 months as a company commander again another right place right time opportunity 
my entire company command was in in combat and, and then after but came back did that went to the joint chief of staff's internship program where they send you to georgetown to get a, a master's degree for a year and then you do two years in the pentagon amazing amazing opportunity uh left there went to work for general odinero rest in peace uh, mm. part of his strategic studies group so a little think tank yeah. started getting into the academics started getting into urban warfare sure. was a part of that little group for a year went to west point taught there four years helped stand up a research center and that's what where i am now i also work for the work for west point now that i'm retired i'm the chair of urban warfare studies for the modern war institute so 25 years in still serving can you talk about the modern war institute a little bit so i i graduated in 2009 and we had just, I, I think, if my timeline's right, the uh, counterterrorism center, uh, combating terrorism center was relatively right. new. But the Modern War Institute, I don't even remember hearing about it. So, yeah, what is that? Yeah, yeah amazing. So, um, around when I got there, just be, ran, again, right place, right time, which, which is a lot of, you know, the Army career. Um, they, there was a big push to relook the military program. Everything from the Department of Military Instruction to the field training, everything under General Caslin who is my, my leader, uh, the soup, the original soup. Um, he asked the military program, all of it, to relook what they're doing, um, see if they're world-class. So around 2015, we brought together literally like all the godfathers of, of, of the army, General Abizay, General McMaster, General Perkins, and, and did an external review of West Point's military program saying, is it world-class? Is it the best in the world? Because a lot of people invest, you know, we as a society invest in that school to make sure it is. The answer was, of course it is, but it could always be better. And one of the things that we had discussed even before that external review was standing up a research center in the military program. Like, like you know, there, there's there's about 27 different research centers there, right? It's, it's, it's huge. There's the Combating Terrorism Center, the Army Cyber Institute, all of them. So we created one in the military program, um, it's closely attached to the major called Defense and Strategic Studies. So it was a small research center dedicated just studying modern war, which we also kind of showed that there was a gap in um, studying what's, what's going on now and then feeding it back into the West Point curriculum and then byproduct feed it to the army. So it's a research center that has a website that's a digital publishing platform. That's kind of big as well as it. It's the only research center at West Point that publishes an article, a podcast or a video every day, five days oh. a week since 2015. Uh, oh wow! Yeah. So if if anybody's ever asked, you know, looking for just leader development, there's like literally like four different podcast series. One just on war stories, which interesting. Uh, we call it <laughs> we call it the Spear. So it's just literally guys from multiple wars, multiple generations talking about no, you know, there I was, um, and then and there's a bunch of other ones, but it's I'm really proud of it because I helped stand it up. Um, mm. Liam Collins, who was the the director of the combating terrorism center came over and then became the director of the modern war institute as the first director so it is still thriving and then when i got out they offered because i was doing so much in urban warfare they offered to keep me on like hey you can keep doing this and and have a dream job basically now where i just get to research i write articles i have a podcast show like all this helping west point make sure that their curriculum literally is the 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 best in the world as in you know i'm flying into nagarna karabakh to study the 2020 war making articles and videos about what should be learned from that war 
and we really do it all year long. It's a, it's amazing. Well, John, I would say that's where you just keep using the words lesson learned. And I think that's the point of all of this, right? Because we've all been there sort of right in the combat experience and, and we know big picture, whether it played out or not <laughs> to the nation's benefit. I don't know, but we don't want those sacrifices to go lost, right? Because individuals did struggle. Individuals did die in, in these wars and to like, why did, why did that happen and how can we learn from it so it doesn't happen again? I just think that that's like just paramount with the war experience so that it's not arbitrary. Yeah, we actually say sometimes it's just lessons relearned. Mm -hmm. so there's not that many new lessons. It's just sometimes we forget them and have to relearn them as we're a rotational military force. And we really struggled with the name, to, to be honest, of the, the Institute, at the Modern Warfare Institute, which some people mess it up um, sometimes talking about, or the Modern War Institute. Since war really encompasses all that, right? It encompasses winning and losing strategic objectives that do change over time in a war. And I know a lot of us struggle with, you know, wh whether we lost something or what were we, what were we doing there, even in our own deployments um, in the modern war suit really tries to connect that bridge. We call it a bridge between higher level strategic strategy, the goals that the nation, you know, and our political leaders seek, and then us down at the tactical level, learning you know lessons about how to fight differently it seems like there's a gap there and it feels weird to say that but like i'm a history guy i didn't major in history but i've always liked it so um like i, I understand that piece like you study military history because there's always something that applies right especially big picture but then like when units are rotating through a combat zone they're showing you how to find the ied right like we're seeing this type of ied and you're handing that that handoff at the soldier level but there's this middle ground of like wars evolving and I can't think of where I would have looked to find that. Yeah. Is that kind of the gap you guys were? were Absolutely. Filling? In fact, one of the, so there's lots of like moments. I'm a big believer in creating moments in the modern war institute. And one of the first moments was really happened before it was even created was a, a brand new West Point cadet, your know, second Lieutenant did his time in Afghanistan and wrote an article of here's 10 things I wish I would have known before deploying. Mm. And, and that is powerful when about how big we are sometimes you forget that there's just there is gaps in information out there for depending on where you sit and is where you stand uh, and there's a and there was this thirst for information i think you're exactly right and we and i know you guys have had sebastian younger like we, we have a big speaker series and the first time we had him up there it was standing room only because people yearn to to learn and to know about the unknown and um despite how big we are, it's actually hard to get the right information at the right moment. So mm. the modern world is trying to, you know, just constantly turn out what we view as, is a big part of individual development, self-development, as we call it. Who do you and, think the, the audience is? Is it the cadets? Is it the general public? Is it the chief of staff? Where are you guys targeting? All above. Nice. Be honest. Um, and we actually, you know, we, we did a lot of the market research on, who's doing what, what are they doing, how are we different? Um, you know, I think it's the social uh, sciences department has a big conference every year and there's there's a, a lady, um, former secretary of defense for policy, uh, OSD, Michelle Florno, he said, you know, when the Afghanistan war kicked off, there was nobody who could provide, nobody, just a one pager on who are the Taliban. So- It's crazy, we, right? Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. right? Despite all the experts that are in the world, 
So the modern wear suit does, you know, 800 word articles every day and it does 200 page reports. It does podcast you, because different audiences need different information in different ways, right? So you know, I'm a big podcast guy. So I, I love podcasts and that's how I, I really soak in information doing that. Uh, so if you had to, if you forced me with a knife, who is the, you know, the prioritized audience? It's a West Point Research Center. Of course, the number one target is the West Point curriculum, so the, the cadets. But you can target the President of the United States with digestible information, and then the byproduct came from providing it for cadets who can, if you can, if somebody that doesn't know much about something can understand what you put out, then it's going to benefit all kinds of people. What I like about it is I just think it's a great location yeah. rather than like D.C., the big flagpole, right? Where it is, you mentioned you work there. I never have been there with the Pentagon, but I would imagine there's a little disconnect with reality on the ground. And there's probably disconnect in the schoolhouse at West Point. However, you're still training the, the young kids, right? The youth, not interacting with the seniors who came up in a different era and different time. And then that cadre, the influx of the practitioners, let's say, are folk like yourself who just came out, who was a platoon leader in combat, company commander, RI, and then you uh, insert yourself into West Point, bringing these sort of healthy perspectives with the, you know, the incoming youth who are going to hopefully teach this and embody these sort of things. And it's a compound interest, right? I feel like a good leader, it, it, it is contagious in a way, in a positive way, just like a bad leader is. And that's officer or enlisted, right? We need to have both. Um, but we always, a lot of times we hear about the officers a lot of times being naive and stuff. And they are, right? Two left feet and a lot of times. But um, you want them to be well-trained. And uh, I, I, I just like that idea. And then I'm sure that it, you know, starts at West Point. And I'm sure that ROTC benefits from yes. this too. Yeah. And, and to be honest, there, there, are, there are weaknesses in our overall system, our military system, the American military system. And one of those weaknesses is that we don't allow people to focus on one thing, right? Whether you're an officer, you're enlisted, whether you're somebody in the Pentagon, we're constantly rotating either you through a position or you through a problem set, a mission, a combat zone. It's just part of our leader development is that adaptability. I mean, we got the question of why West Point? Why, why not create a modern war institute at the, at the war college, you know, the Army's war college or at, in the Pentagon or in DC? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is that the nation has invested, unlike any other institution in West Point, more than it has anywhere else, as in the number of PhDs in different fields. So a PhD, I don't have one, uh, but a PhD is somebody who's been allowed to focus on a very narrow topic, whether mm -hmm. it's nuclear science or it's the history of Afghanistan. Uh, so at West Point, you have this almost this intellectual white house, you know, capital of all these experts that you can bring together on a single topic. And, and that was a big selling point, but take for me, for instance, right? So I, I've been allowed for the last 10 years because of West Point, because of the modern war to focus on urban warfare. And I can count on this one hand, how many people in the world have been allowed to focus just on one form of warfare, one environment even. Now there's historians that focus on a type of, you know, like might focus on the battle of Stalingrad and there's, there's a lot of great ones, but the military don't just don't allow people to focus on a single aspect of war. And there is a weakness in that, right? So the, you get, you forget like, you know, the old becoming new again, or 
when you actually see something new, you have people argue that there's some new character. We call it the character of warfare. Um, but if you allow people to focus on it, 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 it becomes powerful. So it's, it's creating experts. And by experts, there's a sometimes a different def definition than what we use in our kind of all our military work. Good point. I would think um, that when you're talking about all there's different layers of warfare, right? You're focused on the urban warfare piece, right? And that's, you know, that's like, that's offense, that's combat. But I would also think, again, reflections on, let's just say Iraq, giant, massive war. I feel like all the layers of that war itself can be analyzed in a sense that like, we could analyze the hearts and minds in the counterinsurgency piece. Well, that may or maybe let's say at, in a certain period of time, it didn't work at all, it was a bad idea. Just like maybe dropping leaflets and killing everything was a bad idea during that moment. Maybe it was a good idea during other moments. But at the same time, maybe during all of that, the logistics piece was excellent. And so maybe we lost our battles or we just didn't engage on the offense enough, but maybe there's something that we need to continue doing at the same time, or maybe analyzing the use of uh, defense contractors. Um, again, I don't know how it all fits in, but I think we're going to, well, hopefully we don't, but if we get into another engagement, these type of things are going to repeat themselves, logistics, all that sort of stuff to sustain the fight itself. Yeah, interesting you say that. So one, I, I you know, I, I created my own title, so Chair of Urban Warfare Studies, just because I think it sounds cooler than- Sounds awesome. Yeah, right? Uh, chair of Urban Operations, right? So sure. I studied actually the full spectrum. There you go. Uh, from humanitarian aid to counter to high intensity. And and really one of the the starting points of all this for me, it was the the research I did with the Strategic Studies Group on megacities. But I wrote one article for West Point um, just on, you know, as sitting around like a group like this, this is how we figure out like what we're we going to write about uh, or what are we going to talk about? We sit around in a group like this and then bounce ideas off each other. It's a real important part of what I call writing or thinking. Uh, and I brought up the, the topic of uh, these concrete walls that became synonymous to the battle, the war in Iraq for eight years. Oh, yeah. You knew about these walls. Oh, yeah. I've never, seen anybody, too. A, never seen anybody with a paperweight, one of those. I like it. Yeah, yeah. They actually, I, I, my one of the generals who's the distinguished chair had one that had a coin in it. So they actually gave them out as like parting gifts. That's cool. Uh, so I wrote this article that concrete's the most effective weapon on the modern battlefield because of the eight years in Iraq. That's what you did. You put up walls. Now there are a bunch of reasons why you did that. You put them up to stop IEDs along main MSRs. You put them up to create gated communities and then put their own guards on the outside of those. But for some reason, the you know, the 93% of the world that's not served in the, or in the United States didn't know about us using concrete, uh, which blew my mind. But that article went viral. I had like 200,000 views in, in a matter of weeks. It got picked really? up by National. Concrete. Just an article yeah. about concrete and war. Yeah. And that, but that was the, you know, one, the power of modern wars too, but also like even, so what, what, what further blew my mind. So I, I wrote that in 2000. 15, 16. Um, and then I got a call from Operation Iraq. No, what was it? No, the, bat the Battle of Mosul had started. So I got a call from somebody calling me at West Point. One, one I didn't have a secure VTC capability, although mm. there's somebody who did. But the people fighting and advising in Iraq wanted to talk to me about the use of concrete back in 2008 
because we used it even offensively in the Battle of Slaughter City. We put a wall around around the city because we couldn't go in. So we used concrete offensively. But the the people fighting that war wanted to talk to me about the use of concrete potentially in the Battle of Mosul, two thousand sixteen. And and there are other like other reasons I can't talk about why they wanted to talk to me. But it it like, blew my mind. But that's the rotational aspect. Now we had people deployed in Iraq. You know, six five, six years after the war ended, now fighting a different war, but some of those lessons of concrete, they wanted to talk about. But that was our army calling me. So that that's a side of this where, like for the last 20 years, I know that's kind of ballparking it, but, but we learned from our operations, right? What you did in Sadr City, you wrote about, and you at the very least had 50% of the story. Maybe you didn't have the full enemy side, but you, you at least had the full US side or access to it. Now with something like the war in Ukraine, it's it, like we have the benefit of learning from that without losing troops and losing resources generally, but you're not getting anywhere near the information. How, how are you balancing that? Um, to, yes, it's, there, there's so much value in that, right? I mean, I, I know that sounds cold, but there really is. So that's a great question. So let's talk about how I got involved in the, in the war in Ukraine as a, you know, a regular citizen. One, I saw, I could, I started going on TV talking about the war because they wanted, it was urban, right? There was, I was, I got on Twitter, which is this new aspect of war running my mouth basically on. Totally. There's only one goal in the entire war, which we all knew what it was, right? It was no surprise. They they wanted to take Ukraine. They wanted to overthrow the government. The only way they could do that was to take the capital and raise the Russian flag. There's no, there's no advanced military PhD needed to understand that. I mean, it was the invasion of multiple countries across history, take the capital city, overthrow the government, raise the flag, and you'll have to fight any resistance after that, but that ends that phase of the war. So I started, I got on Twitter and, and said, look, I mean, it's clear. And that caught me some news, you know, some news appearances. And then I was told quickly, like, if you're going to go on the news, you can't say you're with West Point. You can't say you're with the California <laughs> National Guard. Which I understand, right? Sure. But I, I couldn't get ahead of U.S. policy. Well, then I started tweeting at Ukrainian citizens, uh, at or no, I think I worded it just just to be clear. I worded it like if I was in a city and I needed to defend against a superior military. Look across the history of time, there have been some very powerful from siege warfare and castles. Think you know Game of Thrones. Till now, there have been some very powerful things that have stopped larger military so i started tweeting that out um that went viral as well i got like 20 million hits on one tweet uh, because i was telling because the ukrainians did something called armed resistance that people will talk about for 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 a long time you know switzerland finland had like all these programs that if we ever get invaded the entire citizens are going to stand up and help the military fight off it, it briefs well but not that many people have really done it. Sure. Uh, so Ukraine did it, right? So they ordered all military HMLs to stay. They ordered people just to go out and resist. So I started tweeting about, like, well, if I was going out and resist as a civilian, using whether you talk about my time as a private to my time as an RI to what I've learned about urban warfare, like, here's some very simple instructions I would give to citizens in any country. So not that I was a direct advisor to Ukraine, Um that went viral. I, I, and then I, everybody asked me to put my tweets into a, a manual, and I created this mini manual for the Urban Defender, which then got translated into Ukrainian, got put out by the Ukrainian government. Um, 
to give to their civilians to, to fight Russia. So how do I take the lessons, right? So I, one, I'll go to Ukraine, um, a part of the Modern War Institute in a battlefield study once this is over and go walk the ground. Cause I don't think there's, again, the advantage of the dream job I've had, I've walked the ground of lots of battles and even stuff I had studied before going and walking it, it almost either confirmed or denied what yeah. people write and say about a battle. You really got to walk the ground. So I will go walk the battle of Kiev um, soon. Mm. Uh, now my wife doesn't want that to be real soon, but, uh, and then, so it's really, the question is really interesting. Like, how do I take the lessons? How do I, do I let somebody else tell me about what's going on there? Um, and this other thing, which I'll do a podcast actually this week on, there's this Twitter space, which is like a chat room that I found. I don't know how I found it. I think I, after I started getting viral with my tweets, somebody invited me to this Twitter space, which is this 24 hour new chat room with up to like 2000 people in it. Um, everything from Ukrainian military that are in like Odessa or in these different cities, it's called the Walter space to experts in naval warfare, you know, like all this stuff. And I got invited to that. So now it's like what I listen to all day, every day. And I'll find out things about the, the Ukrainian war before it ever hits the news. Like I, I saw images of Bucha the, the day before it hit the news about the genocide that were happening. So that's how I'm picking lessons out. Um, you know, I'm also like tagging visually the things I want to learn about. Um, but listening to this space helps me also develop what we call the research agenda. So when I do go there to collect the lessons, um, just like I did when I went to Nagorno-Karabakh, I went there, I learned stuff that nobody had reported about, wrote a paper about it. And then, then, and then the army invites me to, you know, conferences and things to talk about it because, you know, that for history, especially military history, he who writes the history writes what happened. It's, it's, it's really oh, hard. We all know if we've ever been anywhere, like somebody's writing about where we like, he's not even talking about this or he got this wrong. It really yeah. comes down to who writes the history, right? It's interesting. And, you know, you brought up Twitter and Twitter is interesting, right? And it's obviously in the news right now and free speech gets involved with that. But that is free speech at the same, like, I under, there are restrictions and it is complicated. It's very complicated because, you know, Adolf Hitler was a popular person that used the media for the masses. You know, he was able to, so we, we, we know that history and so we're guarded against it. And we just don't know who the next one is. We're just always guarding against it. So it's easy to point the next finger. We don't know if that's going to be true or not. But like, but also though, on the flip side, it is for most people, it is accessible. And so here you are interacting with citizens across the world. You yourself as a, not like an expert in teaching a foreign language or like how to cook a scrambled egg or something. It's warfare. You know, and you, and you are educating them on how to engage in this thing. And, and they're also able to, and then we're also able to get firsthand accounts of what's going on out of there. And I was involved last, my first real experience with it, seeing how it plays out, what you're talking about is I was involved with that Afghan evac situation last summer, trying to get some of our interpreters out and all that mess. And that's where I got my information initially, right? It's Twitter. It's like, you got to find the right people who are in the know-how. So you got to use your head there, sniff out the BS. But once you do find it, you're like getting this real-time info. And then what was eye-opening for me is to get that information and then see how the telephone game now. 
and to see, even though I wasn't there physically, I was not there. I was in my underwear at my computer, safe as sound at my desk at home, but I'm still getting this information from what I deem to be at least a legit and or credible source. But then how that message gets bastardized or convoluted or dramatized even. And, and it's obviously for clicks and that sort of thing. Cause the media, it's a business. That's how they make money. They don't make money by being, having free speech itself and a moral high ground. They have money. They're able to operate because people click on the link. And um, it, it's just a double-edged sword, you know, it, there are pros and cons to it, but I do think it's fascinating in, in contemporary times that this is something that the people, the peasant or whomever they have access to information out they never ever had when the king or whomever orders them to do something. Yeah, amen. And it's it, one, I, I agree with you, it's both good and bad. And Twister, uh, Twitter can be a dumpster fire. Mm -hmm. uh, the, more, the more followers I get, the more haters I get. Sure. Uh, yeah, there we go. And I have made mistakes. I'll be honest. If you want to talk about one of them, we can, um, where the entire, like a huge veteran community came down crashing on me. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, it can be uh, salty. Yeah, they can be salty, and they will they will crush you if you if you mess up. Uh, uh, but what was it? Yeah, you gotta, go you gotta tell us now. Yeah, let's let's do it. Uh, so, I was putting together the mini manual for the Urban Defender, right? Putting everything on there, the things that should people I recommend people do in a combat zone. Uh, and some of that I was taking advice from other people who are experts in other fields. So one of them was that you can blind a tank with paint. So a, a tank has, uh, it has limitations to what it can see, has limitations in the, the views of it. Um, and this command sergeant major who I trust, who's been an armor, armor guy for 35 years said, you know, those sight blocks are very obstructible. You can blind a tank if you can somehow, um, and I, it actually made me think of a story. So I did a, a, an interview with the, my feature, who was my brigade commander was a, the battalion commander who pushed into Second Battle of Fallujah and lost six tanks because of six M1 tanks, right? They're one of the best tanks in the world mm -hmm. because um, the enemy had fired low-level RPGs, not armored penetrating ones, in volley at the sight blocks and cracked the sight blocks so they couldn't see. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, took out didn't take out the tanks, but you know, no eyes. Very yeah. effective, right? And that wasn't an accident. That was a target. They were targeting those. And you're just talking almost like a slit, right? Like just to yep, see. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Because you know, there are um, electronic, you know, uh, command visors, things on a tank, but there's also like the drivers literally looking out like a, like old school paraphrasing and, and yeah. through, you know, they're bulletproof and everything. Um, but the Sergeant Major said, you know, if, if you were able to get paint on those, you could blind a tank. So I took that a little bit farther because I was talking about urban terrain. So oh, what about a paintball gun? Uh, could you shoot at the vision blocks of a tank with a paintball gun and blind it? Hey, maybe you're inside of a building because all my book is about fighting from within the buildings and protected. The book's more about protection than it is fighting. So I got stupid and basically tweeted out that maybe we should send paintball guns to Ukraine uh, and Elon Musk should help. Hey, why not? Uh, so the veteran community came crushing down on me. Look at this idiot telling Ukrainians to hit the street with paintball guns. Uh, they're all just going to be massacred. One, I stand by if, um, look, so they everybody agreed that if you were in a second story building and you poured a, a, a gallon of paint on top of a tank who, who can't see you up there, 
um, that that would be effective. But they, when I took it to paintball gun, that was it. No, gun. that was it. Uh, they, they, they came crashing down on me. And I actually, to be honest, still stand by if you could be inside of a building in part of an anti-armor ambush and you had a couple guys with paintball guns shooting out at the all the vision blocks and in the book it actually shows because everybody's fine with dumping paint from you know second or third story building but they're not okay with paintball guns uh so it's it's just this thing i've had to block like literally like thousands of people who just attack me every time my voice is out there oh this is the guy who, who wants you know that thinks paintball guns can go against tanks Maybe we call them targeted paint projectiles, right? <laughs> you know, and but it's funny you're talking about dumping paint, and we already talked. To, we're talking to history, and you talk about history of siege warfare and how it all plays in. You know, and I'm picturing right now. I mean, that's a modern day equivalent of pouring the hot oil on the battering ram yep. when they're trying to hit those gates coming in. So the issue was that you know I was speaking from a point of expertise, and I I actually said I had a mistake, um, and I learned from my mistakes. And they wanted exact history where that has happened in war they wanted to like show me that this is you're not just making crap up yeah um so i couldn't find one right unlikely yeah. i could find lots of examples so i i didn't write why one you can't fuel the twitter demons and then right. these salty people if you and one if you block them that kind of gives them justification like look he blocked me um yeah but so I, the answer to that is do you think that crawling on top of a tank is a bad idea probably a bad idea uh right has it ever happened in history so in the vietnam war the Viet Cong, who are vicious would set ambushes and then climb on top of american tanks and try to open up the hatches so they could throw grenades down Oof. like i'm never going to recommend to somebody to climb on top of a tank because that what they actually did was the, the tank behind them would sh- fire a grape shot to basically scatter people them. on top yeah. of the tanks but the the Viet Cong were a vicious guerrilla war fighters oh, no. uh, and, and they did that so to say that what we call kind of unconventional tactics don't work in war or just get people killed i agree if you don't have a an anti-tank guided munition you probably shouldn't be messing with a tank but it was also fueled by this whole thing about molotov cocktails which i don't know why it became so popular in ukraine but you had citizens driving up to a tank and there's a good video and throwing a Molotov cocktail out the window at a tank, which is, which is really has no effect. Sure. So, sure. Yeah. If you can blind a tank, I stand by, if you can blind a tank, it will be help attack them. So what, what's interesting, today. what's interesting here is like, we've got uh, garage door sensors that are not on our garage door. So I need to set those up to do that. I go to YouTube, right. And they show us how to do it. And I still don't know how to do it. But um, you, you have those resources right in front of you. You're, you're in this think tank job that I feel like so many other think tanks, they put together these wonderful proposals of here's how these things could work. And then that, that's it. It just goes, sits on a shelf somewhere. Maybe a policymaker reads it. Maybe a general reads it. Maybe they even teach it at West Point someday. But you're, you're coming up with information that goes directly to the battlefield for implementation. That's crazy. Um, it is. And that's it's scary, right? It's, not, it's scary because... As you're doing that, you can make mistakes and you could potentially get people killed. Um, you know, I, the, the, it was a living document. So I immediately removed that page, of course. Um, and then I, people had so many ideas for what to put in. But the other interesting fact is that, you know, it, it went, you know, the Ukrainian government put out the document that I, I put together um, because they needed to get civilians information. What's well, already been translated into um, Italian, 
Romanian, of course, Ukrainian, uh, Chinese, so Mandarin uh, for Taiwan, think Taiwan. Um, and, and I think there are about four other languages as what Ukraine showed is that like, it isn't necessarily the, 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 the power of the military, the urban terrain can actually become difficult for any size military to, to be honest, to include the U S military, if it's prepared for a defense, because attacking an, a city using speed and surprise is one thing, but attacking a besieged city as is a city that everybody's set up a defense around is, is, has been since the beginning of time, the worst strategy. So I always quote Sun Tzu, which is really ironic because I, I used to hate it when people did that to me, right? So you either quote Shakespeare, Sun Tzu, or Clausewitz, if you're- There you go, yeah. You, I mean, you are a colonel, so right? Uh, carry on. As an urban warfare guy, everybody would always throw Sun Tzu at me and say, look, Sun Tzu said, don't do urban warfare. Like, no, what he said was, here are their, you know, four strategies which you can beat a military. The number one is attack their strategy, like number two is attack the their you know logistics or attack their army. But in the very last of this list, I'm only about four or five things. He goes, the worst strategy you could ever take is attack a besieged city, which makes sense. I mean, you're just going to crash against their walls and they're going to they have a chance against you. So that but that that lesson applies today. And that's why Russia failed in Kiev is that they weren't able to do what we did in 2003, right? Rapidly get to Baghdad and, and eliminate through you know multiple plans eliminate the resistance had the had Baghdad with six million people in it resisted nobody could take it but that's usually not the way it works but ukraine mobilized its citizens and also shut the gates to the city you know blowing up bridges putting up obstacles hmm. where russia would have needed 15 times more than what it was bringing after it failed the first part of the plan which is to get there rapidly have you seen anything in Ukraine that's that's been unique to Ukraine, like a new strategy or a new tactic that's come up on the Ukrainian side? Or is it all kind of little pieces of history that are repeating? Yeah, a lot of history repeating, um, mm-hmm. but also a lot of lessons, which is, again, why me? Why, why did I become important during this? And why, why, did, why does the international news media ask me questions? I'm just an old soldier. Because a lot of the analysis was wrong, right? So... The Russian military is this giant beast that's going to swallow up Ukraine in 72 hours. I mean, you know, old fragment guys like me is like, well, there's lots of variables there, right? So Mm -hmm. like the, the, the will to fight became more important than the weapons and the technologies, to be honest. And it still is today. And, and you, this is why I wrote my book connected soldiers about you. There are things that we do that we don't even know what we're, why we're doing it, but have play into the soldier's will to fight, his ability to, to want to fight to, and to push through fear and overwhelming numbers. Ukraine somehow understood that. And I think that was a surprise to everybody. It surprised to me. I mean, the, the, how their, you know, their military fought, but also their, their, what they call their territorial defense, right? All these people that were already identified as fighters and volunteers and the civilians. But like the messaging of the President Zelensky, which is more a la king to like Eisenhower's note to the men and things like that. Understanding that information and that type of messaging is more important than bullets to the fighters on the ground. That's not nothing new, but I think in the modern era, maybe we've forgotten about it and we just overemphasize the 
you know, this military weaponry and overmatch and all these fancy words, we had to get reminded that, you know, that amount of motivation, right? And a lot of people do compare it to Afghanistan, which I think they should. Like, why is 20 years of work on Afghanistan military and the Afghan state fell in a couple of days and Ukraine's fighting two months later? I mean, there's lots of reasons. Um, it, there's a difference, so it's really hard to compare. But one of them, I, I believe in my heart, is the fact that the president didn't leave. Because if your sure. president, if your leaders leave you, then you, they're, yeah. they're, the, the value and the, your cause and, and your foreseeable hope to keep fighting kind of goes away when you know your government fell. And it's the will of the people, like you said. And like Afghanistan, hey, at the end of the day, the largest ethnicity there are the Pashtun. And a lot of them, and the, and the Taliban are merely a militant version of their culture. And a lot of people agree with that way of life, right? Not every, there's other ethnicities and they disagree and uh, there are reasons for it. Um, but there's a lot of people who are on board with the Taliban movement at the end of the day. And I think, and that matters obviously when it comes to their homeland, when foreign entities are there. And then I think Iraq is interesting what you mentioned too, because will of the people. I think that that's an example in 03. Now, that's a whole cut. We could talk later on after mission accomplished and all that stuff. But at the beginning, when you're talking about 6 million people and, and fortifying the city, Saddam Hussein didn't have the will of the people. And that's a completely different animal. Now, what it, it turned into something else. But initially, they were not on board with Saddam and dying to defend and protect that capital or any of those cities. And what I think we should probably mention, maybe you already talking about is leadership, because I like that about your bio, because we're talking brass tacks, I guess, when we first started about, do we use paint on the on the tanks and all of that and uh, uh, tactics and things like that. But leadership is important. And it's an art, it's not a science. And maybe we just get focused on the science because it's easier, what we think is easier to describe. But um, what are your thoughts then? You mentioned Zelensky. How is the role of leadership when it's so gray? How's that fitting in here with, with what you're seeing? Yeah, and I think this is, even when I grew up in the military, I mean, they tell you everybody's a leader, right? From the private <laughs> enters the military, he, he gets assigned squad leader, a platoon sergeant of a basic training unit. Um, I think it's, it, it, it is, it's weird that it, it comes out in war that it's, it, is, it is one of the most important things is the leadership aspect of fighting. And by leadership, I mean, just the willingness to stand up and lead. Um, and sometimes you can't know that. And that's kind of the experience of ranger school until you put somebody under amazing stress to see if they're really, not that ranger school has anything special. Like it, it just creates a closed environment, which we, you can test somebody's character and their will and all of this and their motivation. Um, are they really in it? War does that interestingly as well. So mm -hmm. War put the, the man Zelensky to the test and he rose to the occasion, but also all the way down to the individual fighters. Um, you can't fight a, a war across an entire country, the second largest country in Europe, without individual small unit leaders that are fighting with no instructions for weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. And that's what you see. Mm -hmm. And some militaries believe in that and some don't. Like the Russian military, they have a different perspective on direct top-down leadership, right? They have officers who direct privates. They don't have non-commissioned officers. 
even if they, I don't, I'm not a big believer that conscript means that you're weak because Israel's military has a, a mandatory service and they're one of the most powerful small armies in the world. But I hate to be cliche, but the fact that leadership is the glue from the strategic down to the private level, small unit squad level, and we're seeing that in action on so many levels. Um, and, and it can be undermined. Like I said, we, the military is great because it gives you amazing examples of amazing leaders that you'll follow into hell, but it also gives you amazing examples of dirtbags that you wouldn't follow across the street. Uh, it's just the nature of human nature, really. Uh, yeah. So even in Ukraine, you, you'll, you'll see things that, that aren't right, but as a whole, they, they've invested in that aspect of leadership and they've risen to the occasion. And Russia has done the opposite. So it's not that in this war, we've, you, you don't beat your enemy really by being better than them. You beat your enemy by capitalizing on their own mistakes and setting up an environment which they just make more mistakes than you do. Uh, that's really how you win. So you fight a dis, we talk about these and we have these words now in the US Army about what we call mission command. And we kind of went off on a tangent trying to change command and control to mission command and when you really wipe away all the, the BS and the, and the names, it really comes down to developing that aspect of an individual that they, in time of a need, will stand up and lead. Uh, lead one person beside them or lead a brigade. Uh, you, leadership becomes the, the as important as the will to fight. Is that this is why, and then why I got involved in Ukraine is because you had a bunch of people with the will to fight. But there was this giant gap in leadership, which leadership provides, you know, it provides the motivation which Zelensky gets, but they also provide direction and purpose. So really, if the leader has a bunch of motivated people, but he doesn't know what to tell them to do, it, it won't be as effective as some simple instructions on, hey, just do this. You know, just go out and block the roads, which is what I was saying. Um, and it caught fire. Those simple instructions, though. It, it's something that's interesting to me because if we look back on, on, you know, the cold war is like a nice place to look here where there are these proxy wars and the United States and the Soviet union at the time went so far out of their way to make it seem like we're not involved in Afghanistan. Don't worry about us. That's, that's Pakistan. It's the ISIs, these Mujahideen, we, we don't have any contact with them. Um, everybody knew what was going on, but we were, we're creating this screen between the U S and the Soviet union, but not now. I mean, on the one hand, you've got Congress announcing the weapons that they're sending over directly to Ukraine, not even pretending that it's going somewhere else. But what you're doing, what you are doing is training Ukrainian forces in just a different way. You're not on the ground. They're not coming here to receive that training. But that's what you're doing. Have you, have you, had, any, have you had to at any point um, be careful with how that's presented as you as a person versus I mean, you're associated with West Point. You're associated with the Army, whether you like it or not, right? Uh, I, I, at this point, I'll, I'll insert the disclaimer that I do not speak for West Point. <laughs> should love that, huh? Yeah. Right? I should, uh, hopefully. Yeah, I always lead with that. And that's why even my – so a lot of my kind of Twitter hate has also became out of my, my own changes to my titles, right? So I started off as Colonel John Spencer, West Point professor – not professor, although that means something – West Point instructor. Um, and as I started talking about Ukraine, I got – it did come at professional risk. Like, look, sure. I, you know, you're getting ahead of U.S. policy. You're advising U.S. or Ukrainian citizens what to do. 
you cannot do that with any affiliation. I have to do it as a Joe Smo retired army guy who just happens to know a little bit about urban warfare. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots. So what can I talk about in the open? It's come at great risk, but you also follow your passion. And that's what you, again, what you care about in leaders is is ones that show that they actually care. Um, So even after all the professional risk came as I kept going and I got told to stop, like stop advising Ukrainians what to do. Um, I continued because I felt passionate about what was going on. Just like so many people, I know so many veterans who have gone to Lviv, have gone, who are in there fighting. And I'm sure you know some of them. This was just the way I felt passionate about helping somebody who I thought I could help and that needed help. Um, for all the reasons in the, you know, really the international order that we've established meant that we could not help. Mm-hmm. And there's another point where I made a mistake and, and said on TV that I, I, I backed boots on the ground. Um, although I said part of a coalition, you know, UN peacekeeping, I said all these things, but literally Fox News, Tucker Carlson grabbed the fact that I said boots on the ground and then ripped me on air for about five minutes. Um, and, and it was crazy. There's always lessons like be careful what you say and how you say it because then they, they can grab it. Um, well, what I'm going to tell you, what I think, John, I mean, what you're talking about, it, to me, that's what courage is, is when based off of your experience and thought process, you have a gut instinct of how to take something. And if you allow, this is my opinion, uh, personal risk to be the ultimate decider, I, I don't know, that's not courageous to me. But when you throw that away to the side and say, I'm going to do it anyway, because it's just what I feel is right. That is courage. And it is, you know, it's the essence of leadership. And I think all of those things matter. And, 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 and it's, and the reason it's probably uncomfortable is because it's just not common. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I mean, to include marital issues, like my, my wife, who I keep totally separate from anything I do is like, you're taking a lot of risk. Like, we're going to have problems losing jobs and we're going to have problems um, now, you know, people worried about my, me rising to the level of some Russian visibility of, sure. look, you sure. produced something that the Ukrainians then produced and gave to their people that helped fight us. Uh, it, it, if you're not willing to risk, then I agree with you. Then why did, why am I in this position? Why have I had the opportunities that I've had and had the, the benefits if I'm not willing to use the, all that? For good. You said it at the beginning or early on, there's what fewer than five people in the world who have spent their entire focus on urban warfare and there is an urban war happening. It would be weird um, to sit that out, I think. Yeah. And I think bringing up the examples, like the paint example, I'm still stuck on that. (laughs) Like if people are already throwing Molotov, they're already taking the risk to throw a Molotov cocktail against a tank, which is just going to. Uh, burn metal which does nothing against a tank okay and you have no people with experience on the ground to try an idea out that is unconventional but it passes sort of the common sense check as weird as it is so then it's like well if I think this is common sense I you know it's practical it's doable I know that it's not in the book but it's worth trying anyway, because honestly, if you're really dead set on throwing a Molotov cocktail, how about someone throw the paint first? And then when they open the hatch, throw the Molotov cocktail at them, at least try to burn them up or something, like try to get them somehow. And yeah. if it doesn't work, 
it doesn't work, but they were already probably in, they were already in physical danger regardless because number one, there were already tanks in Russia. And number two, they're already throwing Molotov cocktails at him anyway. Yeah. Amen. And don't get me started. Like, like good. I couldn't, I didn't continue the conversation on open openly because they just attack more Yeah. Um, to include high level veterans. Like in like, you, you, like, who is this guy? What, what the, you know, it, it got really personal. Um, it gets there fast. It goes there very, very fast. Very fast. Like you, you have no right. Nobody should ever listen to you. Um, in World War II, you, you mentioned the things that we used to do in World War II and about the simplicity of messaging. Uh, my, my close friend is Max Brooks, the author of the book World War Z, yeah. um, who is also a mate. You should have him on. He's an amazing military historian. Um, he literally thinks differently. Um, in his book, World War Z, I read it a long time ago and then yeah. asked him to come talk to us. And the dude is amazing. He came and talked to my small group. Um, he is really fast to point out how Hollywood used to got involved in World War II by creating training videos for the army. And there's some amazing ones he dig out. And funny thing, we dug out one that is how to attack a tank, which is really a, a, a World War II de design, you know, but it's actors playing out with like, literally like almost like dodge. I don't know if you've seen dodgeball, but when, you know, the guy comes on with his dodgeball video, it's almost as that it's yeah, yeah. makes you feel like that. There's this guy who's talking like in a, deep southern accent and like, okay now what you want to do is you want to shoot at it um and and, and to where they're going to close their hatches and when they close their hatches that means they can't see mm -hmm. so then you can do all kinds of stuff too like literally but of course what john spencer says about uh yeah because if you're the flip side is that you have people who have been on tanks who've been on our, our tanks the most powerful tank in the world and yeah anybody standing in the open is a 25 millimeter 120 millimeter dead target all day long right yep. you stand in the street nobody said to stand in the street and shoot at a tank with a paintball gun yes that right. will get you killed i said right. stand i said be inside of a building shooting at the vision blocks where nobody can touch you uh so then everybody's like oh, then paintball experts came out like i i've been shooting paintball guns for 30 years that could never that's not possible <laughs> Doesn't this seem like something that you could test pretty easily? Yeah, don't. Like, couldn't we that, test that here? I we could, uh, and, and it came from a sergeant major who who I trust his opinion. But look, I I, I ripped it out. Like, let's move past that. Uh, fine, but there's 80 pages in my book now. Nobody wants to talk about any of the other 80. Nobody on that camp wants to talk about the other 80 pages of no. stuff that's been seen in urban battles across time like putting up barriers that even tanks can't get over, you know, you fighting it from within tunnels. Oh, by the, oh, he knows what he's talking about there, but he said that he, he, he made a tweet once. Well, I'd, I'd say if it's getting distributed, like it is that the focus is on the other stuff, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's doing its job. I wouldn't worry. They're, and, it's oh, I'm frustrating. Not. Yeah. I just, my biggest concern, and it was my concern when we were in Afghanistan, when I was in Afghanistan as a platoon leader, the fear of, you know, when we're one person, the nation being 1% serving and all this and, and the World War II guys were just coming up from the farms and the hometown, they do their time, and then they go home. That was the militias. It was all of that sort of stuff. My fear has always been now we're becoming the red coats. We're too professional. We're too rigid. And because me as a kid liking history and all of that, I viewed this American ideal 
not as necessarily as a maverick, not necessarily as a cowboy, but kind of at the same time. Like we knew that the rules exist, but we're not bound by them. And I'm afraid now as we get, as we're powerful, more organized, more professional, we become bounded by the rules. And I, I view that as anti-American in a way. Yeah. To be honest, I mean, I'm not a historian and I always point that out during my time. I love history, but it's not what I do. I'm not, I, I study urban warfare history, but it's funny and, and I'm not an over like Ranger is the only thing, um, but we started off, you're right, as a guerrilla force. We decided that we would not stand on the open field against the British military in a line and that we would do things like sniping, which was unheard of, like mm-hmm. really unprofessional. Un- yeah, ungentlemanlike, right? Right. Uh, and yeah, then yeah, there's yeah. there this guy named Rain- Robert Rogers who had a little team of these guys, oh, yeah. uh, Robert Rogers Rangers, um, which is the we claim as the forefathers of, of our Rangers today. And he had these standing orders. So what's like number page two of my urban, my mini manual for the urban defender are Spencer's standing orders for the urban defender, as in clear nice. common sense things like um, that. that any, like not for the military, right? For any person who wants to take up arms, like don't stand in the open, you know, be, you know these aspects of like these clear instructions that are still in our, Robert Rogers standing orders are still in our Ranger handbook today with things like keep your knife sharp and your powder dry uh, because we started off like this and be uh, uh, well, stand to that's the term I was looking at stand to the enemy attacks at dawn right yep. so get up before sunrise I mean they're principles right they're not rules and that can to me it's just opinion here but it's like principles not rules and then that's within the left and right of commander's intent. Yeah. Tactical innovation too. So I saw this in my, my, my own combat experience. Like, look, if you're rigid in your application of fighting, then you're going to die. Mm-hmm. So we had this one instance where we were on one side of the Tigris and there was somebody shooting at us on the other side of the Tigris uh, and, th- and then invaded into some urban terrain. So we had to move. We, we were in Humvees. We couldn't swim our stuff across. So we had to wait on this ferry to take us one vehicle at a time across the Tigris. As I'm waiting, all of a sudden I see a boat literally skimming the top of the Tigris um, with a squad of my, my, a, a squad from my platoon in it. That this NCO had grabbed a fisherman saying, hey, take me across this water. And he was, I mean, you know, as a leader, you're like freaking out because they're about ready to drown <laughs> as they're skimming literally the top of the waves on this fishing boat that that's that's power, that's leadership, that's innovation. Um, and that's, you know, what I try to do. And, but that was in, in war. Like if you would brief that, like, no, that wouldn't work. Don't ever let somebody do that. Oh, again, you give me goosebumps now because you're just, now you are explaining the American staff sergeant squad leader, you know? And I think that that is the, that is what it's all about is that sort of initiative that at that level is what determines whether you're going to live or, uh, or win or lose is that, staff sergeant on the ground making those decisions that they have to make without being told yeah and 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 in creativity right so nobody mm-hmm. wants to criticize saving pride and writing scene where they they throw sticky bombs into the track treads uh but of course that that's different you know <laughs> well you bring up my memory now of what we called operation burn ditch which great idea but it just didn't work but we tried it and it was <laughs> In a heavily IED-laden environment, 
where um, we basically, but we are taking such fire from these canal green zones, these ditches, and they could put motorcycles in there and it's the green, right? Um, and we don't have Agent Orange, obviously, to defoliate it. And so our, let's try this, was a flatbed with fuel blivets on the back where you got guys standing on the blivets and then you got like other guys with this fire hose uh, fuel just spraying it. And then behind, you know, you got guys that are trying to throw like the thermite and land it to burn the ditch. And none of the fuel, long story short, none of the fuel was connected to where it would all light at once and all the vehicles got stuck. So uh, no, no, no one got hurt or anything, but it could have been a bad day. If you imagine, if you really think about it, if we were to hit something, when we've got freaking fuel, two fuel blivets that are full with guys on the back, just in the open air. But it was just one of those things. We just had so many, so many problems from this green ditch zone that we just, we had to do something about it, essentially. That's amazing. That is uh, not a submission for your book. Um, (laughs) Tested and and not Uh, I have. It's a lesson to learn to not do. uh, I've done similar crazy things. Uh, and, and the guys who served with me know about some of them that are, let's try this. And, oh, that, that did not work out. Luckily, we did not die because of that. And that's why how you can laugh about it, right? So we're coming up on the hour mark here, John. But anything you got coming up, uh, podcasts, books, articles, interviews, anything uh, we should keep an eye out for? Yeah, so my book, Connected Soldiers, um, Life, Leadership, and Social Connections in Modern War, hits the shelf on July 1st. It can be pre-ordered now. And I actually have another book coming out in either August or September on urban warfare. So just on urban warfare called Understanding Urban Warfare. Uh, and then I can be followed really mainly on Twitter as Spencer Guard, but I'm on the Facebook and I'm on the, the YouTube and all that as well. It's the paintball gun guy on Twitter. So yeah. find yeah. him and, and, and bring Hopefully. those trolls down a notch or two. Please, no, yeah. Yeah. We'll I'm put not- it in the show notes. Really appreciate it. You know, when I read your bio, I can't remember if we reached out to you, you reach out to us. Cause we always got people coming and going, but like, um, oh, that, that bio, I just, it just, I'm very, I, a lot of respect for you. I'm very impressed with your career and the things that you have done and the things that you continue to do. And so I just, I've really enjoyed this conversation just personally. Thanks brother. I mean, it's always an honor. And, and this is, this is what we all should do more, right? It's just around talk. Uh, yeah. it, it's therapeutic. It's, it's really, I, I really enjoyed it. And I don't just say that. I appreciate it, John. We'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks. So, yeah. Hey, if you've got an extra 16 seconds, it would really mean a lot to me if you left a review for War Stories. I read every single one of those, and we'll do our best in coming episodes to maybe shout some of those out just as a way of saying thank you for taking the time. But either way, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.